Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On March 21st, 2020, North Korea shoots down a South Korean civilian airliner, mistaking it for a U.S. bomber. This sets off a series of events that leads to the launching of 13 nuclear-armed ballistic missiles towards the United States. Several of these missiles miss their target, but not all. One bomb levels Manhattan, another hits northern Virginia, and a third lands near Mar-a-Lago, Florida. In all, 1.4 million Americans are killed. The new book, The 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the United States by Jeffrey Lewis, explains how this tragedy transpired. The book, of course, is fiction. Jeffrey Lewis calls it a speculative novel, but it is all too believable. And that's because Jeffrey Lewis is a nuclear security expert who has spent decades studying the North Korean nuclear program. He's the director of the Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Monterey Institute and is a pioneer in open source intelligence gathering and geospatial analysis. He and his team famously identified the location of North Korean missile test sites using tools available to ordinary citizens. And I'm sure many of you know him as the host of the excellent Arms Control Wonk podcast, and he's someone I've relied on over the years to help understand and explain the North Korean nuclear program. But now he has taken his hand at fiction, and his book, which takes the perspective of a government report explaining the series of mistakes and miscalculations that led to this nuclear attack, is one of the most vital international relations books of many years, despite the fact that it's fiction. And I suspect it will be a standard on international relations syllabi in the years to come. That's because the scenario he lays out is entirely plausible, and the politics that enable this tragedy are very real. We discuss the plot at length, including the miscommunications, misperceptions, and just plain mistakes that lead to the events of March 2020. And there are a lot of spoilers in this conversation, but that should not deter you from buying this book. Definitely buy it. We don't even get into one of the more intriguing parts of the book, which is how the rivalry between Ambassador Nikki Haley and the acting Secretary of State undermined a diplomatic effort to de-escalate the situation. We don't even get into that. There's there's so much in this book we didn't unpack, but we do talk through what I think are, are the major plot points. And it's just a, such a revealing book, I think. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. We actually kick off talking about a different book, a book called Hiroshima, which was the 1946 nonfiction work by journalist John Hersey, who famously interviewed survivors of the bombing one year prior. And in his book, Jeffrey Lewis uses testimony from survivors of the Hiroshima attack to describe the effects of the bombing of Manhattan. Now, here is my conversation with Jeffrey Lewis. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So both the book and the place are pretty important to me. Um, I had to read Hiroshima like four times when I was in school. I'm not even kidding. I recall having to read it twice in high school and then getting it assigned again in college at least once. And so, um, you know, it it plays a pretty big role in, in my thinking. And, you know, it was really important. That was the first account that many Americans had of the aftermath of the bombing. So I think our contemporary idea that nuclear weapons are horrific, you know, that norm that we've built up that these things are terrible, I think owes a lot uh, to John Hersey's reporting. And so, you know, I I actually have a character in one of the chapters who was an homage to a real person who is uh, described at length in the book. And I'm also a member of the governor of Hiroshima's roundtable on disarmament. So I go every year uh, in August and I'll, I'll actually be leaving on Monday, um, you know, to spend my my, uh, my the better part of my week uh, there this year. And, um, you know, it it has a really profound effect on, I think, pretty much anyone with a conscience who visits. And I've always wondered, like, what is the way to get people to engage um, with the truth of the place? Because it's a wonderful place. You know, it's not it's not super depressing. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, But you also have to deal with the juxtaposition that it is this, you know, wonderful, happy, vibrant place um, that did experience this terrible thing. And so I kind of hope that the book would be a bridge. And 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 if people can, you know, make it through the book, um, then, then maybe they'll look at some of those survivor testimonies and, yeah. and maybe make a trip. And, and uh, you know, Manhattan and Jupiter, Florida and uh, Northern Virginia, you know, in, in your book are places that will become the next Hiroshima, the next Nagasaki. So I, I'd love to talk through the, the plot of, of your book um, and we'll probably have digressions along the way um, to sort of emphasize like the realness of it. But let's start where, where your book starts on, on uh, March, was it March 21st, 2020? Yes. What happened that day? Uh, so what happens that day is that there is a civilian airliner on its way from South Korea to Mongolia filled with school children. And it's a, it's an Airbus A320, which has a real problem with it. Uh, it's not a terrible problem, but sometimes the uh, power systems go out and the pilots have to switch over to a backup power system. Uh, and that's happened a number of times. Again, it's a real problem. No one's ever died. It's not a reason not, not to, not to fly Airbus. Um, but in the book, it means that for a very crucial period, the plane is flying with no transponder. Uh, and so the North Koreans can't see that it's a civilian airliner and it goes off course. And when it goes off course, it replicates the route of a recent bomber run uh, and it strays ever so close to North Korean airspace and they shoot it down. And what do we know about sort of North Korean command and control that might suggest that, in fact, uh, they would shoot down a, a civilian airliner in this situation? Well, uh, I mean, 
part of the answer is they have shot down U.S. aircraft before, um, right after the agreed framework in 1994 was signed, right, which was a deal in which North Korea uh, froze its nuclear weapons program in exchange for better relations with the United States, right? At the moment, things were going really well. Uh, a U.S. helicopter strayed into North Korean airspace and they shot it down without thinking, Um and we've also seen that the North Koreans historically have staged various provocations. Um, North Korean aircraft shot down a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft in 1969, causing a really serious crisis. And so it's not hard to imagine that if a bomber strayed into North Korean airspace or or just got close enough that maybe they were a little confused about it um, in a tense situation. And I've, I've created a kind of tense situation for this to happen. Um, I, I don't really have any doubt uh, what Cruz would do. Hmm. And, and, you know, there's also, you know, that the, was it the Cheonan Chon, uh, ship? Yes. That, that yeah, was, that's that right. Was sank. This was a uh, Republic of Korea, South Korean uh, naval ship that was shot by the yeah. North Koreans. I think Americans tend not to realize how many really serious confrontations that there have been. Um, you know, there's the, the USS Pueblo. I don't know that one. Uh, which, which the North what, Koreans... What was that? See, you're talking oh, about... Oh, so that North was a I'm reconnaissance. Like, yeah, I, I follow this stuff professionally, but I don't even know that one. Well, you know, it started a while ago. So in the late 60s, things were really bad. So there was a U.S. reconnaissance ship, uh, the USS Pueblo, which the North Koreans grabbed, held the crew. They eventually released the crew. They still have the ship. Hmm. Uh, and in fact... Uh, uh, some wag sends the people of Pueblo, Colorado, a nasty postcard every year telling them to come and get it. Um, yeah, and and they they shot down an EC-121 reconnaissance aircraft uh, in cold blood, just a you know straight provocation. Um, there's the axe murder incident. There was a, a, a two U.S. servicemen were bludgeoned to death with axes, axe handles, um, for trying to cut down a tree in the DMZ in 1976. Um, you know, the so North this happens Korean... basically. This is like very yeah. much not only in the realm of possibility; it's it's happened before. Oh yeah, so, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it ebbs and it flows, and we're in a like ebb period where things have been relatively calm. Um, but for sure, when tension goes up, you get things like the Chonan and and the shelling of uh, Yongpyeon Island. So okay, so so this uh, civilian airliner is shot out of the sky by uh, North Korean forces. Uh, what happens next? Well, so you know the context here is that there has been a diplomatic opening like the one we saw this summer, and it has collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so the the plot shifts to Seoul where President Moon has to decide what he's going to do. And it's interesting to me because I think a lot of people, you know, because he has been so forward leaning in his diplomacy, um, you know, there's a sense that Moon is kind of a softy, um, which is strange because early on he was not, you know, early on he expressed his desire for dialogue with North Korea, but put it on hold while they were testing things. Um, and when a North Korean defector came across the DMZ um, and, and North Koreans shot at the defector, Moon was outraged that South Korean troops couldn't fire back. Mm. Uh, and so I think the idea that he's a he's a he is a dove in some really important ways. Um, but I think he is a more complex and interesting figure. And so he has a real political problem um, because he has been very critical of his predecessor who mishandled a, a ferry that sank, mm-hmm. killing a large number of school children. And she was seen as being 
absent during that period. And, and so in the book, he's been attacked for his diplomacy. So he has tacked back to a, a, a more hawkish position. And now there is this outrage. Um, and, you know, spoilers, yeah. but. Oh, there'll be lots of spoil, uh, spoilers in, yeah. in, in this conversation, but for, for good reason. Yeah. And, you know, it's a chance for me to look at one of my favorite pathologies in decision making, which is he wants a strong response, you know, a response that's not going to look like he was ignoring the situation. But he he gets presented a much larger military strike um, and he scales it back. Hmm. Right. Because what are he, like the bureaucratic politics of that in the South Korean military? Yeah, that you draw from. I mean that that's like an interesting. You said like I, I love examining sort of, and I think what your book yeah. does really brilliantly actually is is sort of examine um, sort of bureauc- how bureaucratic politics play into um, the kind of of tragedy that unfolds. Right. I mean that's it's exactly right because you know people make these decisions in these little rooms, and these rooms are disconnected from reality. You know you have information coming in and information going out, but that information is not always accurate. And it's very hard to understand it objectively, you know. So what I hope to do is to have these little scenes where people make decisions in a parochial sense that seem very reasonable and sensible and you can talk yourself into. Um, But it's only when, as the reader, you have the comprehensive view, you step back, you think, oh, no, 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 don't do that. So what does does Moon end up deciding? What What does he order his military to do? A very limited missile strike against the headquarters of the uh, the Air Force, which also controls the air defenses. So the people who are literally responsible for the shoot down. And rather fatefully, one of Kim's palaces. Uh, he's not trying to kill Kim. He thinks there's exactly zero chance that Kim will be there. Kim is not there. Um, but he wants to send a message um, of of disapproval by targeting something that is symbolically linked to Kim, um, and you know it's it is a much smaller strike than the North Koreans talk or the South Koreans rather talk about. Um, you know it is the South Koreans have a much larger strike package uh, for dealing with provocations, and so Moon thinks it's tough but de-escalatory because it's just a tiny bit of the strike holding the rest of the strike back in reserve uh but kim jong-un doesn't see it that way so so what sort of uh perspective does does kim jong-un bring to this like what are what sort of what's his um point of view and and how is he sort of interpreting the attacks that are launched at north korea yeah there are a lot of threads there he is Outside of the capital, I have him at a facility getting ready for a, a, a missile test. And so he is physically removed, which means he's only in contact through his cell phone and the cell phones of his aides. And what happens is when the South Koreans launch the strike, um, and, and this is a real problem in, in, in military planning, right, is you, you're launching a military strike and you want to inflict some punishment, but you're also degrading the command and control system. And so from their perspective, they lose contact with the Air Force, right, because that building goes and it takes the Air Force a while to reestablish communications. And so they, they think that there has been a general attack that, that knocks out their air defenses. Um, and then 
with things exploding around Pyongyang, people pull out their cell phones and start texting and calling, which, by the way, is what happened on 9-11. And that could cause uh, an outage. So his suddenly his cell phone, which he uses to communicate, isn't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I remember jump- that vividly. I mean, I was yeah. I, my brother worked downtown. I was trying to call him and nothing was going through for hours. By the way. I, I try not to complain about like criticisms because yeah. everybody brings a different criticism to the book. But one person thought it was very unrealistic that the president on Air Force One would have trouble communicating in a crisis. And I, I didn't know how to break it to the person that the quote where they're complaining about their communications is from 9-11 yeah, when 9/11 Air Force One was having trouble right? communicating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like command and commu- control, command and control systems often struggle in, in those kinds of environments because there are unexpected things happening. And then word comes in that there was a strike on on his residence. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. But the kind of quick version of that is that's how the invasion of Iraq started. In the United States, we often forget it because it was kind of a fool's errand. But the night before the invasion, the United States took a shot at a place called Dora Farm where they thought Saddam might be sleeping. And they tried to kill him and they missed because he wasn't there. Um we forget about that, and so we don't think of that as being a particularly momentous moment. But in the book, the North Koreans absolutely looked at the invasion of Iraq. And so they have decided, you know, that what it, what will a U.S. invasion look like? It'll look like an effort to knock down air defenses. It'll look like a cyber attack on their cell phones. And it'll look like uh, taking a shot at Kim himself. And so from the basement in Kusong, where he's sitting... It doesn't look like a limited attack. It looks like the beginning of an American invasion. And it's the the sort of your classic sort of fog of war. Yeah. And so and, so so how does so what does he do? Like how does he respond? Uh, so he responds by putting into place what I think is a North Korean war plan. And you know this is a thing that I really wanted to talk about because people often say like it would be crazy for Kim Jong Un to use nuclear weapons. And at some level, that's true. And it's very hard to explain to people why it might make sense for him. Um, but he's afraid of ending up like Gaddafi or or Saddam Hussein. And so from a North Korean perspective, if a U.S. invasion is coming, right, and he, he thinks that, he's wrong about that, but he thinks that's what's happening, he's crazy to do nothing. Uh, and so what I think the North Korean war plan is, what they say it is, what they exercise for, and what actually I think makes sense given their situation is to try a large-scale use of nuclear weapons not against the United States homeland but against US forces in South Korea and and Japan holding back the ICBMs and and why not respond just like with that massive conventional uh artillery attacks on like Seoul because it's not about punishing the South Koreans you know we're focused in this kind of like deterrence is about punishment um, I think that's a place where we misread the North Koreans. They're not using nuclear weapons just to make us suffer. I mean, there is some of that, but they actually see nuclear weapons as a way to target the forces that will be used in the invasion, right? To destroy those forces when they are relatively concentrated and then to destroy the ability of the United States to bring in munitions and food and fuel. So that for the North Koreans, this is a, a war winning capability. And it's, you know, it's it's reasonable. Just, it's rational, you know. Well, I mean, my favorite yeah. example of it, which is there are two things. One is the North Koreans have said that the mistake Saddam Hussein made is watching the U.S. build up a giant invasion force and doing nothing about it. And they have said they won't wait. 
Um, Norman Schwarzkopf said the same thing. <laughs> the mistake the Iraqis made was waiting. Um, and there's even a wonderful quote, which I, I put in the book by a, a U.S. Um, general who in the Korean War did not want to use nuclear weapons. And his argument was that if the Soviets used nuclear weapons on behalf of the North Koreans, it would punish us far more because our troops tended to be concentrated when we brought them into theater. So it's not a it's a desperate move by the North Koreans, but it's it's a it's a desperate move that is, I think, of a piece of the same ruthlessness we saw when he executed his uncle and he assassinated his half brother. You know, he has learned that when the chips are down, that you have to be bold and you have to be willing to take risks. And that's what then propels this crisis into its nuclear phase. So so North Korea launches uh, nuclear strikes against um, military targets in the region. At the time, what's going on in the United States? Where's the president? Um, can you sort of set the scene, uh, which yeah. is frankly all too believable, uh, of, of um, the, sort of the, the, the Trump administration's interpretation of what's going on and also sort of, you know, how Trump himself through, you know, Twitter specifically um, led to this uh, crisis point? Yeah, I'm really bummed that the thing about Trump not understanding time zones has just broken because I could have really worked this in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the juxtaposition where it's the middle of the night in North Korea when the when the South Korean strikes hit and it's still cold and Kim Jong Un is like underground in a basement, you know? So that's a that's a dark setting. It's it's night, it's cold. Uh, you're underground. Trump is in Florida. It's sunny. You know, you can almost at least I, I sort of imagine, you know, Kim is in a physical environment that feels like a war and hardship to him. It's easy for him to imagine that this is the beginning of a war. Trump is looking forward to his day of golf. Right. And so they don't have their With Bob Kraft of the, of the <laughs> yeah, New England Patriots his, his real friend, yeah. you know. Uh, there was actually a wonderful picture of Bob Kraft getting off Air Force One and one of the uh, not Air Force One, Marine One, the helicopter. And one of the um, military aides is carrying the football next to him. And I am not much of a professional football fan, but uh, I know people hate the Patriots. And I just think the idea of the Patriots having access yeah. <laughs> to the new uh, and, and they cheat and use it if they could. Yeah, I mean, Bob. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. Bill Belichick would totally. Anyway, um, so. You know, the the way it plays out in the United States is that there is a time difference. And there is a real effort by the president's staff, which I intend to be read sympathetically. Um, there's a real effort by them to manage up and to keep the president happy and uh, not disrupt his schedule and, you know, not deny him sleep and let him go about his day in a normal way and to just generally project an air of calm while they work to defuse the crisis. So there's like a lot of nannying. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a chance to explore the, the question of like, at what point are you serving the country by trying to make things normal? And then when do you cross that line and begin to enable uh, the dysfunction that's going to lead to the disaster? And I, I actually don't think there are really easy answers to that. So it was kind of fun to explore it through fiction. And, and, you know, in, in sort of a not entirely unbelievable set of circumstances, he's you know, recently fired his national security staff. And so you have like kind of a, a new staff, a relatively new staff that's sort of managing uh, the administration, though Jim Mattis is still secretary of, of defense at the time. Um, 
And like, so, so in what ways do they try to manage him and, and, and sort of how, um, based on sort of what we know on, on, in, in press reports, how, um, accurate a description of this kind of managing up, do you think your, uh, your, your book reveals? Well, I, I think it's probably fairly accurate. Not, not because I know, I think it's probably fairly accurate, not because I know all that much about the Trump White House per se, um, but because I've spent a lot of time studying decision making and a lot of the dysfunctions that I describe, I think, are ones that you could find in in other White Houses. Um, it's just kind of spiced up a little bit with, you know, little bits of gossip here and there and, and things I've seen in press reports. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the things that I think are most true are that the president is voluble and that there's an effort by the people around him to control what information he gets and to manage his reactions to it. And so I think the fundamental nature of the problem is in the book, as I suspect in real life, the vast majority of energy that the staff expends is expended on managing the president and not managing the problem. Um, and it's about not letting the president make things worse. And I think in the book, what I sort of explore is the idea that, you know, they have this idea like, okay, well, there's been a shoot down of an airliner, but they don't know about the strike yet. It's the middle of the night in the United States. Do you wake the president up? Do you want a cranky, sleep deprived president going through this? And they decide no, uh, which is a, a decision I can get behind. It. Mm -hmm. It's a decision I can understand. But the consequence of that is when he wakes up and he flips on Fox News and he gets the account of what's happening, um, there is this window where he has the account and he has his phone and he has Twitter uh, and he does a bad thing before they get him down into the skiff. And, and so so what does he tweet and, and, and how does that exacerbate the crisis? Uh. Yeah, he makes what is a pretty anodyne statement. He just makes it in the worst possible circumstance. You know, there are a lot of reports that he tends to rehearse his lines, you know, that he he tries phrases out on people um, and sees how they react and sees how they go over. Um, and so he has a call with his chief of staff in which he tries out a line uh, about how uh, Kim Jong-un has made a really big mistake. And uh, if he keeps this up, he won't be bothering us much longer. And the chief of staff sort of chuckles at it to appease him. And he decides it's a good line. And so in this moment before he walks into the skiff, he has these stairs in front of him. And, you know, he's famously afraid of stairs. Um, he takes out the phone for a moment of comfort and fires off that line, right? That uh, little rocket man won't be around much longer, which for the North Koreans is all they need to know. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one thing that I found like so interesting and like, again, like so, so sort of real uh, about your description of senior staff's interactions with the president is this dynamic in which, as you said, you know, you have like what, um, you know, Bob Corker would call like the adults in the room, you know, around Trump, sort of trying to, um, again, as you said, manage the information flow, manage sort of um, try to like 
confirm his own biases. And, you know, you have, as you said, you know, Pompeo is, is a good example of this when, you know, Pompeo would do the, the, the briefing as CIA director, would um, emphasize information that would confirm Trump's biases, that would placate the boss. And now you're seeing um, with Pompeo's uh, conversations and in, in diplomacy in North Korea, he's sort of implying uh, in public that there's like more progress than there really is in order, again, to like placate the, the, the boss. But as you say, this this all kind of backfires um, in in a really critical moment, and the strategy that the so-called adults in the room have used to manage the boss comes back and and sort of bites them in the rear in, in a really profound way. When you have the president thinking all these things are true that aren't really true, like the uh, uh, missile defense system can intercept all the weapons, or you know things like that. Yeah, there's this wonderful thing, which he really said, you know, he said that each interceptor had a 97% chance of shooting down uh, a missile. And if you shot two, uh, then it was it was guaranteed, you know, and okay, two 97% chances, like statistically, it's pretty close to guaranteed, but it's not. But of course, the real numbers, which are openly discussed are very different, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's a thing that I see a lot. And by the way, it's true of many policymakers, not just Trump. It's just that he's kind of a, an extreme version of it that they have these ideas and they, the ideas are really stuck in their head and you can't move them off it. And so for Trump, it's the idea that North Korea's missiles don't really work and that if they did, we could shoot them down. And on a day-to-day -day basis, people don't really argue. You know, I, there's actually a story which is not in the book because it's not about North Korea, but it's it's a real story about Casper Weinberger, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, when uh, when uh, Star Wars was under consideration. The Star Wars plan at the time was to use nuclear explosions in space uh, to generate particle beams that would destroy the incoming missiles. And this was such a strange idea that Weinberger simply did not believe that the architecture he had signed off on involved nuclear explosions in space and would repeatedly ask his staff for assurance that now this doesn't involve any nuclear explosions, right? Hmm. And the staff actually would say, yes, it does. And then he would be like, oh, okay, great. It doesn't involve any nuclear explosions. <laughs> and at one point, uh, I think uh, Francis Fitzgerald recounts it. I may have the paraphrase slightly off, but one of the advisors in frustration said, cap, it go boom, <laughs> you know, and they just could not, they just could not get his head around this idea. So speaking about it go boom, um, in, in sort of with this back to the corner in, in, in this sort of bunker in North Korea and having seen the president's tweets, um, the North Korean military launches their their ICBMs against the United States. Um, based on what we know today about North Korea's capabilities of launching these missiles, um, how um, sort of accurate, how much, how much do you have to stretch, say, to um, suggest that uh, missiles might hit New York, uh, Arlington, Virginia, Florida, and, and a few f sort of miss their targets elsewhere? You know, I, I don't think it's a stretch at all. Um, you know, we're a little different here at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies because we do open source analysis. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to make our own assessments. Um, and we have kind of had the sense over the past couple of years that there's been a tendency to underestimate the North Koreans. 
Um, and so, you know, we were predicting ICBM launches in, in 2017, and a lot of people said we were nuts, uh, that that was not the kind of thing the North Koreans could build. Um, and, you know, like, it's good that there is a healthy debate. I mean, I, I'm actually friends with some people who, who uh, are more skeptical of the North Koreans, and, and I actually appreciate arguing with them and their view. Um, so I think for some people it would be a stretch, but for us based on our assessments of where the North Koreans are, our assessments of the state of their industrial base. Um, you know, I actually pulled back a little bit from the, um, uh, from the kind of high U S estimates. So like the high U S estimate for number of nuclear weapons right now is 60, uh, and adding 12 a year, which by 2020 would have, um, you know, put us, uh, sort of around 90 or so. Um, you know, cause I, it was 60 like last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say like, well, they didn't have quite that many. Right. So I kept within the kind of range sort of at the high end, but not certainly not maxing it out. And, uh, so how many did they end up launching against the United States? Uh, lucky 13. And how, Some, sometimes you, you pick have targets? to be a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So why why did you pick the targets that uh, – why did you decide that this is what North Korea would target? Yeah, it's based on what the North Koreans have said they would target. So a couple of years ago, Kim Jong-un signed something called the Mainland Strike Plan, and behind him was a map of the targets in the United States. And those targets had a certain logic to them, which, by the way, took a little bit to understand. Uh, there were four targets identified in the United States, and some of them are easy to understand, and some of them are, are – a little more complex than which one is weird. Okay. So the one that's easy to understand is Washington, DC, right? Mm, of course. Yeah. Check. The two that I think make a lot of sense, but they take a second to get are Pearl Harbor and San Diego. Hmm. It's where the fleet is. Um, if you look at the invasion of Iraq, one of the kind of really boring things that nobody ever talks is the enormous logistical challenge of how much sea lift it took just to get stuff to Iraq. Um, you know, just to get food and fuel and equipment, munitions, you know, like it just, it took, um, I think there, it took so much fuel off. If I'm remembering, I actually have the correct number in the book. Um, but you know, like the amount of fuel would have filled a, a a train of fuel tankers that stretched from like DC to Santa Fe. Hmm. Um, and so the North Koreans openly talk about striking, Pearl Harbor and San Diego, I think, because they want to interdict the ability of supplies to flow into the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth target was really peculiar. And and I don't target this in the book, but it's it's worth discussing. It was uh, Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. Okay, explain. Yeah, it took me a long time, and I'm still not sure I'm right, but I, like the moment it dawned on me, um, it was actually while I was writing this book, I was like, that's why on 9-11 – when Bush was in Sarasota and got on Air Force One and they did not go back to Washington, D.C. Uh, because they were worried about continuing attacks, they had a discussion about where they should go. And where they chose to go was Barksdale Air Force Base. And they, they weren't there very long and they eventually went on um, to Omaha. I suspect, I suspect that the North Koreans saw that. And wanted to convey at the time, this was during the Obama presidency, that not only would they target Washington, but they would they would 
target wherever the president went to hide. Hmm. And I think they're just wrong about our protocols. In the book, um, you know, it's still D.C., San Diego, Pearl Harbor. I add New York uh, because the North Koreans have now talked about targeting New York. Uh, you know, and that's an obvious thing to do given the president. And and my Barksdale is is Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Their own sort of decapitation uh, attempt. Um, yeah, yeah, I think for them it's very personal. No, you know, Kim Jong Un sees North Korea as an extension of himself and would see an invasion of North Korea as an effort to kill him and his family. Uh, and I think it's important for the North Koreans to convey um, that they would repay the favor. And what? So, so another I think interesting. Um, interesting aspect of, of your of your piece of, of your book is is how it portrays the potential US response in terms of would in this circumstance the president this president in particular um, respond with a nuclear strike of of its own of his own how did you sort of come and, and you're I think are, are ambiguous here deliberately so as to whether or not he he might his what his intentions are because there's like a struggle over the nuclear football yeah. in, in, in your book. And so it's hard to, to, to deduce whether or not he'd want to nuke them, although his, his, his aides say that he would. So what, what, what do you like suspect yeah. is, is sort of the likely – like how does that scene unfold and what does that tell us about protocols around the launch of a nuclear weapon? Yeah, so I, I, I can't get inside Donald Trump's head and frankly I'm sort of glad that's not a place I could mm-hmm. live. Um, I am not someone who thinks that he is serious about a lot of the bluster. You know, he strikes me as pretty typical of every every barroom drunk I've I've ever met. I mean, I know he doesn't drink, but he, he doesn't need to. Um, and so, you know, whatever my criticisms of him, I actually don't think he would carelessly want to launch a war. Um, on the other hand, he does seem to me unstable. And so I wrote that as though I was one of the people in the room, not quite sure whether he was blustering and not quite sure whether he really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is very much in line with his governing style. I think so. Yeah. And, you know, it leads to this kind of confrontation. Um which it's interesting. I, I think it's probably the least believable passage. Um, but for me, it was important because, you know, we have a system where the president can make such an order, uh, can, can order the use of nuclear weapons with no second vote, right? That's a, it's a popular myth that we have that you need two votes. Well, you don't. Right? The president just needs his little card <laughs> with, with, with the number that authenticates his voice. You know, it's not a launch code. It just says, yeah, this is really the president. And, um, and and he's good to go if if he can if he can reach the National Military Command Center and that order will go right out to the launch units without going through the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so I I I wanted to talk about that system and I wanted to show how it would frighten people in a crisis. And you know, there was a kind of literary choice. You know, you try to show, not tell. And if the officer with the football just walks over. And like flips it open, you're kind of just telling people this is the the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of like showing why this is so dangerous because the officer who does the thing that we all would want him to do, right, which is to like not hand it over and then run out, 
he ends up in prison Mm -hmm. because that's a pretty serious disciplinary violation. And the whole system is premised on people not making that decision. And I I, I wanted to explore that. So I I wanted to bring this back to to present day. Um, You know, spoiler alert, New York gets flattened. Um, as, as does Northern Virginia. What is it? Something like uh, 1.4 million people are, are yes. killed in this attack. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I was kind of bummed about the fact that the number was the same for South Korea and Japan as it was for the U.S. Um, it was a total coincidence, but I really modeled them using Alex Wellerstein's nuke map. And I just, I felt like I couldn't, it felt like cheating to me when I ran it the first time. And then, the, you know, the numbers I got were the numbers I got. Um, but I wish they had been slightly different. It's 1.4 million in both cases. And and maybe just describe the blast in in New York to make it like real to people. And then if you have a few more minutes, I just want to talk about like present day, um, and and sort of how we we get there. But but if if you would just can you just like explain how a nuclear explosion like the one you describe in your book would impact New York City and in Manhattan where it hits. Well, I mean. There are a lot of things that would happen. I mean, first, there's going to be the blast. Uh, and, you know, depending on what kind of weapon, in, in the case of, of, um, of New York City, it's a, it's, a, it's a staged thermonuclear weapon. Uh, so it's, you know, 100 kilotons, uh, not rather than like 10. Um, I think it actually is 200. Um, and that blast is going to create a pressure wave that is going to knock down buildings from uh, about Trump Tower uh, right to about where the UN is. Uh, and I have Nikki Haley. Her, her her apartment building is it really is right at the edge mm-hmm. uh, of that of that blast of, of the point at which blast would knock things down. Um, you know, then after the blast. You're going to have a whole bunch of things that could happen. I mean, one thing that could happen is you could get a fire that breaks out. Um, you know, fires are pretty uh, – I don't know if I would say they're random. Modeling fire is hard. Um, and in the book, I'm sort of flip. I say, you know, the U.S. never tried to do it. Occasionally, they did fun studies to figure out if they could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they never could do it to the point where, you know, it's in the war plan. So the war plan doesn't – it assumes no fires at all. You could get a fire, uh, which I don't have happen in New York, but I do have happen in other places. Um, and and you're going to have uh, then radiation sickness. Um, you know, people are really – really going to be struggling. And so you're going to get this very large 9-11-like event, but then followed by this much bigger public health catastrophe, some of which will play out immediately, and then some of which will play out over the course of, you know, a year. So um, here we are. Nuclear weapons are bad. Nuclear weapons are, are bad. FYI. Yes. So here, so here we are, uh, you know, in, in the summer of 2018, a couple of months removed from the, the Singapore meeting, um, the failure of which precipitates the, 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 the plot of your book, you know, drives the, the, the plot of your book. Um, but what do we know about the progress uh, towards implementing some of the, well, there aren't really proposals in the meeting, but some of the like, ideals, I suppose, of that, that um, outcome document that they both signed? Like, where are we in the, the diplomacy of that right now? So we're in, I think, an incredibly dangerous place because North Korea has never, not once, offered to give up its nuclear weapons. Um, And I think that this is a thing that has gotten confused because the South Koreans have said this and the president has said this. Um, 
But what the North Koreans talk about is denuclearization. And what they mean by that, that's a that's a word that they pushed in the late 80s, early 90s when they didn't have nuclear weapons, but we did have them in South Korea. And so for the North Koreans, denuclearization is like we fix all our problems and then maybe someday peace breaks out. And then when we're having the party with the unicorns, we don't need the nuclear weapons anymore. Um, and I make fun of it, but it's actually, that's a serious – it's a serious and respectable position to have that that their view is that they'll they're only keeping the weapons as a security measure. And if we could transform our relationship, then then they would reconsider the issue. It's not a not a not an absurd thing for them to say. The problem is we're saying the opposite, right? We're saying, no, 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 you have to give up the weapons first. And so they have continually tried to paper over this dispute Um but you, it's not a thing you can paper over. Like you, I, you have to choose. Either the deal is relations get better and then disarmament is an aspiration, right, which is the North Korean view, or no, disarmament is a condition of improved relations. But it can't be both. Well, it does not seem, though, that, that South Korea, at least, uh, they're trying to paper this over in a way. I mean, they, they seem to be making this kind of big diplomatic overture to North Korea. I think just like a few days ago, or even today, even um, Moon Jae-in announced a new, um, you know, proposal for, you know, wide, wider economic partnerships with the North. Yeah. I mean, the South Korean strategy, and I have to say there was a chapter that I was sad to lose because it dealt with this period very directly. Yeah. Well, it basically happened. So, so it no longer, no longer worked as a chapter. Um, you know, where the way the chapter unfolded is you start and it, it kind of paints Moon as being a little naive. Um, but it's a sleight of hand because the longer you read it and the more you watch it fail, you actually start to feel guilty about thinking he's naive because you're like, oh, oh, no, 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 that was our last chance. Okay, well, wait, no, no, can I have that back? Right. You know, it's a kind of sense. So, I, you know, I, I am very supportive of, of South Korea's diplomacy, but I think it is premise on a very clear understanding that North Korea is not giving up its nuclear weapons and that disarmament is a thing that, you know, appears as an aspiration. Um, and the only place where I am slightly critical of the South Koreans, although I'm not really that critical of them, is that they clearly, when they saw the opening with President Trump, did not disabuse him of the notion mm -hmm. that disarmament was the thing that would happen fast. And I, I think that, you know, that's a it's a bait and switch on their part, but it's like I get why they did it. I would do the same thing. Um, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, I, I I can let you go. Um, I, I guess final <laughs> final. I guess maybe like my my final question. Um, how likely is the story of of your book sitting speaking as we are in, in the middle of August? You know how likely are the events of your your book? Um, how likely is it that the events yeah. of your book will unfold? in the coming year. So it's not likely, you know, we're looking at a small probability that all these things go wrong and that they all go wrong in this way. Um, but the problem is it's way more likely than it needs to be. You know, it's, it's not that it, it, the problem isn't that there is definitely going to be a war. The problem is that we are running all kinds of unnecessary risks for no purpose. And we are, I think, planning to run those risks forever. Uh, and that's 
that's what causes me discomfort. Um, you know, everything in the book from the uh, coercive bomber missions that really set the stage for the crisis to the airline shoot down to the, uh, you know, South Korean strike, which they think is very modest, but looks the other way to the confusion in North Korea to the failures in U.S. policymaking. Those are all real things that have had that have happened. So, right. Everything is plausible. And and the, it's just that we run the risk of 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 a moment like this, which is a perfect storm. Um, so it's not, you know, like you don't need to go like start sleeping in a in a bomb shelter. Um, but I, I do think we need to start making better choices. Uh, well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. This book is is vital. I suspect it will be uh, the only fiction book on the syllabi of of international relations uh, master's degrees in, in in the coming years, as as well it should be. I hope so. Well, um, great. Well, uh, I will stop recording right there. Um, oh, I didn't. I didn't have a chance to say thank you. Oh, well, you for having s- me on. Oh, I, I no. just you made the two comments, and I was like, I want to say yes, please put it on your syllabus. But also, thank you very much for having me on. All right. Well, thank you. It's still recording. Anything else? Okay. Well, well, is there anything else you want to get in? I mean, I like I said, I could talk for hours, but I want to be no, respectful of your time. No, no, it's great. It's um, great. No, no. I mean, time is time's fine, but I, 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 I think anymore, and nobody's going to buy the book. We, <laughs> we, we went through it in pretty, pretty solid detail. Uh, I, I, everyone buy the book, and I'll, I'll keep promoting <laughs> it because it's, it's great. It's, it's really, it's, really it's actually the, the last piece. Of, it's, it's probably the first fiction I've read in like a decade. Now that I think about it, really, yeah. And I, I, oh, I live a boring oh, life. Fiction is good. It uh, has its place. It has its place in the world. Yeah. There, there are things that are easy to easier to explore in fiction than to say in nonfiction because yeah, you know. Yeah. Nonfiction comes off as judgmental. That is true. Whereas Although fiction, I did read, I did read Underground Railroad. Now that I'm thinking about it, two years ago about slavery, and that was very judgmental. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as know, well it should be. Just, as well it should be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there are, there are things that deserve to be condemned. <laughs> All right, big thank you to Jeffrey. That was fantastic, and you know, I, I think again, I, I'm really excited for this book. Um, it really is is an important and vital book of, of international relations. Unfortunately, the scenario he describes is not at all unplausible. Please do support uh, his work by by buying the book, and you can support my work by subscribing on iTunes, leaving a review, and of course, becoming a premium member and unlocking a host of of goodies and rewards, including. My Don's Digest Global News Clip Service. I'll send you a news roundup of the most relevant and important global news of the day directly to your inbox very early in the morning to get you started. I will see you later. Bye.